Hello, it's Basha here, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. In today's episode, we're bringing you something a little different, a mystery of sorts, a tale about two missing priceless notebooks. But I don't want to give anything away. I'm handing over to my colleague, Ellen Halliday, who's asking, who done it? It started out as an ordinary morning in March. Jessica Gardner, Cambridge's top librarian, was sitting in her office, as usual. It's exactly the type of room you'd expect for someone in a job like that. It's got high ceilings, windows that overlook the city's treetops and spires, and there's a grandfather clock in the corner that marks time. But on this day, at around 20 past nine, something unusual happened. Jessica got a message from a colleague. She'd found a package outside her office. And when she um, began to open them, she very, very sensibly, uh, quickly called uh, myself and a couple of the colleagues in. The librarians couldn't believe their eyes. And what was left was a large pink gift bag. And inside that gift bag was the original archive box. A large brown paper envelope um, on which uh, the words typed were librarian, happy Easter, and an X. And inside that, these two, this single package, a tightly cling-filmed package containing the two Charles Darwin notebooks. They had unwrapped two priceless, handwritten books, each a little larger than a postcard. These were the books where a young Charles Darwin had begun to sketch out his world-changing ideas, books that had been missing for almost 22 years. Yet here they were, mysteriously returned to the library, and there was no clue who was behind it. It's hard to convey in such a small little package how much they mean to people, but I think they are sacred texts. But Jessica couldn't get ahead of herself. She convened a room of experts to check that the books weren't faked or damaged. Slowly, with bated breath, they went through the notebooks page by page. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I knew then it would have to be an extraordinarily detailed hoax or forgery, and I, I couldn't work out why that would happen. Call me naive, but it, they looked like the two notebooks we've been searching for for two decades. For the library, this was a moment for celebration. The notebooks have come home, and that's what it feels like. I think it was a, an absolutely joyous and healing moment. So good things can happen and stories can have good endings. However we got here, this is a good ending. But for me, the return of the books wasn't the end of the mystery. It was only the beginning. Behind the good news story of these treasures regained, I was more interested in the questions the library wasn't answering. And the more I dug into the mystery of the returned Darwin notebooks, the more questions I had. Why would someone take the notebooks? Why, after 22 years, would they, or someone else, bring them back? Why did it take 20 years for the library to report them as missing? And how many other priceless artefacts are currently missing from library shelves? This is a slow newscast from Tortoise. I'm Ellen Halliday, a reporter here at Tortoise, and in this episode, The Darwin Job, 
I'm going to investigate how one of the world's most prestigious libraries lost two of the world's most valuable books and whether it could happen again. It's a story that's taken me from the world of academics to book dealers and professional book thieves, stretching from Cambridge to Havana, one that began decades ago and is still unravelling today. Cambridge is a city of cloisters, archways and alleys. And many of the people that live there are driven by research, by a quest for knowledge, by the mysteries that they each want to solve. The University Library is the city's main research library. It's an imposing, red-brick building with a 17-storey tower right in the middle, filled with hundreds of thousands of the university's most important and precious books. Jessica's office is at the base of that tower, in the heart of the library. So um, I'm very aware I sit in a very, very long tradition, and part of that tradition is collecting and caring for some of the most important heritage materials um, that have meaning to, to people right around the world. There's a weight to a job like hers, a pressure that comes with knowing that there are so many years of history behind you. She became the head librarian in 2017, only the second woman in more than 400 years. And it's clear how passionate she is. Could you take us back to the moment when you first heard that the notebooks were missing, whether that's before you joined or after you joined the library? So I first heard about it once I'd been appointed and was in post. So I was here already at the university when I learned that. And uh, it, it was really devastating. And I've, I've spoken about it and there's still a catch in my throat and I can make no apology for that. You might be able to hear it in her voice. But when Jessica tells me this, she genuinely has tears in her eyes. But you can imagine it, can't you? Taking on this once-in-a-lifetime job, this huge responsibility. And then the heart-sinking moment you find out you've also inherited a 20-year-old mess. These books, they're really manuscripts. Uh, and they've got aged leather bindings, um, which, as you can imagine, they are nearly 200 years old, have got wear and tear. Um, and they've got little, I think it's brass clasps. So you have to handle that very, very carefully to open that clasp. They're the handwritten notes that a young Charles Darwin stashed in his jacket pocket, where he jotted down his eureka moments, his notes to self, in the years after he returned from his voyage to the Galapagos. A journey which would later shape the origin of species. You know, really every surface on those two little notebooks are covered in, in Darwin's writing, you know, from, the, uh, from inside the cover all the way through to the back cover. Most importantly, the books contain the Tree of Life sketch, a diagram Darwin used to ponder how species are categorised, a representation in pen and ink of his radical thought. This sketch is the evolutionist's equivalent to the true cross. It's a rallying cry for believers that's been replicated on everything from tattoos to cushion covers. There's tons of original Darwin material in Cambridge. The University Library alone has over 8,000 items, which take up more than 100 metres of shelving. Many of these items are irreplaceable. But nothing, really, is more special than the Darwin notebooks. Yeah, they, they are small. Um, to be in their presence matters. So when Jessica found out they were missing, she faced a choice. Keep hoping, as her predecessors had done, that the two tiny books would reappear. Or own up, go public, 
admit that they were lost. So, so what was it that made you decide to go to the police now? Was it, what was the catalyst to say now is the time when we put out that appeal? You know, if after 20 years of looking you've not found it, then what, what hadn't you thought about? What have you closed down? Why have we not substantially explored theft or missing in other ways? Jessica went to the police. Interpol were informed and the university went public with its secret. I am really sad to have to announce a public appeal for help in recovering two missing notebooks, one of which contains Charles Darwin's iconic Tree of Life sketch. I am doing so because we need your help. It was a gamble, but one that clearly has paid off. Because 16 months later, that hot pink gift bag arrived out of nowhere. Someone returned them. But who? And why? And why now? While everyone was busy celebrating the book's return, nobody was talking about how they were taken in the first place or why the library took so long to report them as missing. It's something my producer Claudia and I tried to understand when we spoke to Jessica. She told us that in September 2000, the notebooks were removed from their shelves to be photographed. They were last handled in November 2000, when that photography request was completed. And then we know that a routine check in January 2001 uh, found that the box contained the notebooks had not been returned to its proper place. These are the facts that we know. We know very little else. At some point in January 2001, the library realised the notebooks were missing. But that's all we know about what happened to them. So I started digging through annual reports from the time, looking for clues. They revealed a library in chaos because of renovations. People working in the corridors, rare books photographed in a porter cabin outside the main building, and extra staff members roped in to help move them. Uh, but my understanding is the photography unit was in a porter cabin in the grounds of the library. And that um, clearly represents a different situation from what is standardised. When I heard Jessica say this, I thought, well, that's one way of putting it. And that photography unit is inside the building now, has been for many years. They're an incredibly professional and skilled setup. But at the time, yes, that was in a, a, a porter cabin in the grounds. And I don't know what happened, but that's not a normal setup. It all feels very polite. So I wanted to clarify if this was just how things were back then or whether something had gone wrong. This was not a standardised at the time. This was, uh, the photography unit must have been moved out of the building while the renovations took place. Would we approach it that way now? No. Jessica is in a tricky position. She wasn't working for the library at the time, so she wasn't responsible for the decisions made then. And it's clear she doesn't want to outwardly criticise her predecessors. But it is frustrating that in our conversation, at least, she doesn't seem hugely interested in engaging with us about what went wrong. I found myself asking, don't you want to find out who signed out the books, who might have put them back, who would have had an interest in taking them or restoring them? The person who might be able to answer our questions, one of Jessica's predecessors, Peter Fox, won't speak to me. He tells us he has nothing to add that isn't already in the public domain. Cambridge University Library is seemingly unable to tell us more. Cambridgeshire police are similarly tight-lipped. But I couldn't stop thinking about these mysterious books. And 
I started to develop a hunch. So I'm just on my way home from the office and I've thought of something else that strikes me as strange. The bag that the notebooks were left in, it said on the front, librarian, happy Easter. But it was left outside her office on the 9th of March, which is a solid six weeks before Easter, but only eight days before the end of Lent term, which suggests to me that... Whoever put the bag there, whoever brought the notebooks back, is operating on Cambridge term times rather than the schedule of the outside world. Lent term is what Cambridge calls the term that runs from January to March. So when the books were returned, it was just before classes ended for the Easter break, but weeks before Easter itself. So I start asking around. Most academics I speak to assume the notebooks were taken and returned by one of their own. A professor, perhaps, who wanted to study the pages in the peace and quiet of their own home, and then lost them in a towering stack of untidy papers. In this version, the person who took them is eccentric and unintentional. But the books were returned in mint condition, wrapped in cling film. They hadn't been knocked around. They had been stored with care, returned in that hot pink gift bag with a certain panache. So maybe the person who took the books wasn't interested in science. Maybe they were interested in money. But then why return them after so long? Why take that risk? My name's Jolyon Hudson and I work for a company called Pickering and Chateau. And we sell rare books and have been selling them since 1820. Although, luckily, I have not been there that long. I first visit Jolyon in his office, in the back room of a church down a narrow lane in the heart of the city of London. In fact, it's apparently the church that inspired the nursery rhyme Oranges and Lemons, say the bells of St Clement's. In an email, Jolyon warns me it's Dickensian. And he's right. Once I'm inside, the musty smell of old books hits me. Every surface is piled high. I try to deal in books which don't exist. And that what I mean by that is they tend to be not in public libraries or collections, and there are very few copies. Jolyon specialises in rare and antiquarian books. So it's sort of a, a business that tries to plug gaps in people's collections, and I don't dealing books very often, which I've seen before. I wanted to speak to Jolyon to understand whether the person who took the Darwin notebooks might have wanted to sell them, and why, after 22 years, they might have been unable to. Does does that kind of thing happen often? It it doesn't happen often. The, The reason for this is it usually takes one dedicated person to steal items, But if they're stealing them, they either steal them for themselves, but if they have to actually steal them to make money from them, they then have to actually sell them through the book market. And the book market, the antiquarian book market, is very interconnected. And everybody knows everybody's business. And if an unusual book comes up for sale, everybody knows where it's come from. And so it's very difficult to then resell that item through the book market onto another client. 
it seemed as though the person who took them would never have had a chance to sell the notebooks. They were just too well known. But I still didn't think they could have been taken by an opportunist, a researcher, a student, or a library staff member, someone who saw the books lying around and in a moment of golem-like impulse, spirited them away. Jolian had told me that stealing things usually takes dedication, and nobody at the library or in the world of Darwin scholars could tell me about anyone who fitted the bill. I needed some cold, hard facts. So I go back to those annual reports for more clues. And that's when I saw it, in black and white. Okay, so I got a text from you. What have you found and what do I need to know? So I am obsessed. I have gone down a rabbit hole of annual reports and documents and it's brought me out in a place that I really did not expect. Twenty years is just a moment in the 600-year history of the university. But the annual reports from the late 90s and the early 2000s really do take you back to another time. The big news is that something called the web is really taking off. Visitors are invited to attend a lunchtime talk on the internet, where it came from, how it works, and what it means for society. And at the bottom of the page and I was not expecting this at all, it just says, On a less happy note, during the late 1980s and early 1990s, the library, along with the London Library, suffered some serious thefts of rare books. The thief, a member of the university, was caught after extensive police investigation, and during the year was sentenced to four years' imprisonment. And this blew my mind. Let me tell you about William Simon Jakes a man the newspapers dubbed the Tome Raider. Jakes is a former Cambridge student and a book thief. He was first convicted of stealing rare books in 2001 and then again for a second time in 2010. And these were high-value, scientific books, texts by Newton, Galileo and the economist Thomas Malthus, who was a major influence on Charles Darwin. The books were taken from some of the country's top libraries, including the University Library in Cambridge. Jakes used disguises and at least two fake names. At one point, he even fled to Cuba to escape the law. And when I first read about Jakes and the annual reports, I couldn't believe it. By this time, I'd been talking to the library for a while, and they'd never mentioned this person or any thieves at all. In fact... I was repeatedly being told how rare this type of thing is. But William Simon Jakes showed me that it does happen, sometimes on a huge scale. So I really wanted to find this guy. Of course, I'm not saying he took the notebooks. I can't possibly know that. But I wanted to ask him, why do people steal books? And how do they do it? So what do you know about him now? What have you worked out? So there's not much about him online, but I have found a company that seems to be in his name. Okay. And this is really exciting because there's an address that's linked to that company. So I sent him a letter to that address. How are you feeling? 
Yeah, good. Had a little moment when I sealed it up. Nerves, but we're on our way. <laughs> Let's go this way. I do have some information to go on while we wait. We know that William Jakes grew up in North Yorkshire and that he was a student at Cambridge. We're at Jesus College, Cambridge. It's where William Jakes came to university in autumn of 1987 to study economics. It's got this very grand entrance with a wrought iron gate with some gold decoration. And I've been speaking to some of his year group that I found from an old photo. The classmates of his I've reached out to, none of them were aware of, of anything that he'd done. They, they'd not heard anything about him since university. So this news that actually he'd become this notorious Tome Raider was, well, that was news to them. They remember a quiet, polite and somewhat distant man who dressed much older than his years, often in corduroy. Although people I've spoken to who knew him from his later years remark on his arrogance. One fellow student remembers very specifically that he had the famous tennis girl poster on his bedroom wall. We even managed to track down his parents. But when I finally speak to his mother, she tells me she's no longer in touch with him. So eventually, we visit the address linked to that company we found. All right, I've got the letter. It feels like a last resort. Well, the letter, I've got the company reports. I've got my phone to show him a picture. All right, let's go. Doorbell. Not sure that worked. The woman living at the address tells us they have no idea what we're talking about. It's just a mystery. It's so frustrating. The man who lives in this house, whose wife tells us that they've never heard of the name William Jakes who showed no sign of recognition about these corporate documents. He is the sole shareholder in a company. The director is William Jakes. Like, what? The lawyer whose signature is on the corporate documents can't help us trace him either. William Simon Jakes, the Tomb Raider, is an enigma. But then we have some luck. As that whirring sound might tell you, we've got liftoff. Someone who was seen inside his head and his bank accounts. There we go. Oh, you little beauty. Gotcha. Is he there? He is. In all his glory. Can I have a look? Yeah, yeah. My name's Kareem Khalil, I'm Queen's Counsel, and I specialise in criminal law, prosecuting and defending. Kareem comes to our interview armed with a backup disc full of old notes from the early 2000s, which takes us a while to crack into. He was the barrister who prosecuted William Jakes when he was first convicted on charges related to rare books in 2001 and 2002. What was your, what was your reaction when you saw the detail? My first reaction was astonishment that he had successfully managed to pass so many antiquarian documents through some of the principal auction houses in the UK um, with names known in every household 
and that none of them seemed to have picked up the fact that these items had been stolen. In fact, the first person to realise that something Jake's was selling was stolen was Jolyon Hudson, who you heard from earlier. And uh, I rang up the London Library. They checked, and indeed it had been stolen. And there was just an enormous train of events. It was more and more books came out from this. It wasn't just the London Library. It was Cambridge and various other um, major libraries uh, found that their books had been stolen. At this point, things escalate. The police quickly get on Jake's trail. They alert auction houses across Europe to look out for Jake's lots. They interview him twice, and then he urgently transfers more than £307,000 from a bank account in Gibraltar to one in Cuba and flees to Havana. Cuba's a bit of a mystery, really. It is. His return from Cuba is more of a mystery to me. I don't know why he came back. Um, If he thought he had enough money to live off and he knew he was somewhere he couldn't be extraditioned from, um, it's a curiosity that he returned From Cuba, Jakes tells his solicitor to direct police to deed boxes that he has stored in Cambridge, London and York. They crack them open one by one and find stolen books and pamphlets hidden inside. More than 90 of them, half the total amount, come from Cambridge University Library. Just weeks after the Darwin notebooks must have gone missing, Jakes is charged with 19 counts of theft. His trial lasted weeks and involved Kareem and other lawyers rootling through piles of valuable books in front of the jury. So we had the pleasure of literally being able to handle an original Galileo and so on. You could literally smell history in the box, um, so much so that those of us closest to the boxes were rather unwell by the end of the trial with the various antiquarian spores that were still hanging about. Um, There's no thought of protecting us uh, at the time. And what was the kind of atmosphere like in the room? He seemed to be icy cool throughout and never rose to any sort of um, level of irritation that we observed. But he was um, a devil for the details. So one knew that behind this sort of air of calm distance from what was happening. He was working ferociously behind the scenes to try and distract us or establish his defence in so far as he could. William Jakes was sentenced to four years behind bars. His conviction in May 2002 was the news I read in the library's annual report, the news its director at the time must have been aware of but it didn't stop him returning to similar behaviour later. He, he seems to be somebody who, is, um, who just has that interest and, and can't stay away from it. Jakes was soon at it again. He was arrested once more at his parents' house on Christmas Day in 2009, this time specifically for stealing 12 volumes of one book worth a total of £50,000, containing pictures of camellias. Apparently, he signed into the library under the false name of a Mr. Victor Santoro before hiding them under his jacket. The librarian at the time told me that the discovery of the thefts was, for him, a traumatic occasion. Then, after that second arrest, a second trial and a second stint in prison, the trail of William Simon Jakes goes cold. But Kareem Khalil hasn't ever forgotten the case of the stolen books. Can you tell me about the moment that you first 
heard about the Darwin Notebooks? I first heard about the Darwin Notebooks on just a news bulletin and got immediately one on the mind goes straight back to uh, to 2002 um, and think, oh, gracious, now here we go again. Do you have an idea about why somebody might have returned these books after so many years? I don't know why they would. In some instances, people just like to have notoriety, even if they don't want their name attaching to it. So the fact that it's stirred up this huge amount of interest will give the perpetrator a sense of excitement and achievement because they know they've got away with it, if you like, for a period of time and they've been able to hand it back and have got away with that without being detected. So the excitement of avoiding detection and having had the joy of having this document in their possession um, has its own reward. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you believe it's plausible that the notebooks were stolen, then... Thievery of this kind is complicated. It's high stakes. And returning the books unnoticed to the university library, that requires skill, timing, planning. For William Jakes to take the books immediately before his arrest, when he was firmly on the police's radar, I have to admit that seems unlikely. All things considered, I have no evidence that William Jakes or someone working for him, took the Darwin notebooks. Still, I did want to ask Jessica Gardner about him. Can I ask you whether you've ever heard of somebody called William Jakes? Yeah, because that's a matter of public record, isn't it? So I'm aware of that individual. Um, Not being an investigator, I, I, I genuinely can't say more, but yes, I'm aware of that individual. Have you had conversations about him with the police? Um, we passed all the names that came forward to the police. Were there multiple names? Because there were a lot of conspiracy theorists out there, yes. 
Uh, but, but, you know, things that were a matter of the public record, then, you know, where there were uh, matters in the public domain, then, of course, we wanted to make sure the police were aware of those too. So when I sort of started working on the story, you know, I, I came across a mention of him through one of the university library's annual reports. I think it's 2002... You've done your homework more than me in that regard. I did not expect to find any information about the Darwin Notebooks and the annual reports. So let's get things straight. By spring 2002, Cambridge University Library knew that they had lost two of their most important books and that a former student had handled more than 90 books stolen from its shelves in the preceding years. But they still assumed the books were just misplaced They did look for the notebooks several times, but it took them a further 18 years and a librarian like Jessica to decide that they might actually have been stolen. I'm Jim Secord and I'm director of the Darwin Correspondence Project and I'm also emeritus professor of history and philosophy of science at the University of Cambridge. Jim Secord was at Cambridge in 2002. He says that libraries were different back then and manuscripts were more accessible. He remembers the upheaval of the porter cabin and the construction work. And he also remembers that Cambridge University Library were keen to keep the fact of the missing notebooks very quiet. Only an inner circle was trusted with the news. Can you tell me about the moment when you first heard that they were missing? I really learned about it pretty much when I became director of the Darwin Correspondence Project. That's a project that finds and publishes the scientists' personal letters to help people understand how his ideas developed. Jim was appointed to lead it in 2006. It had happened a while back, but it was, you know, something that people knew about, but it, within the library, there was a very small group of people. And it, it, I think at that point, we were just, at some level, hoping that they would turn up, to be honest. It's a very, very big place. In that kind of intervening period when the library knew the books were missing, thought they were potentially lost, what did the library tell scholars and researchers who came and wanted to to look at the originals? What did they say when people wanted to see them? Um, I think generally they told them they weren't available for consultation. I think sometimes they may have been told that they were, um, they were in conservation, which, um, to be honest, made me feel somewhat uncomfortable, but the, it was hard to explain if people were pressing about what, where they actually were. It was pretty clear we didn't want to say they were missing at that point. And I think in retrospect, it would have been better to have said that much earlier on. Did that sometimes happen that people people did press and say, where are they and, and push for answers? Well, I mean, you know, there were cases where you had um, people who had a really quite good reason for seeing the originals and they wanted to know where they were. And so... Sometimes I think they kind of figured that something was off, so to speak. Um, Sometimes I think they just, you know, figured, well, that's just the way it is. You know, libraries are large bureaucratic organisations. When we put this to Cambridge University Library, they said it would be unfair for Dr Gardner or her team to speculate about decisions made by their predecessors. If we want to understand what the librarians at the time were thinking... We have to remember that it happens quite a lot that libraries lose track of some book or manuscript or sheath of paper. There are 210 kilometres of shelves in Cambridge University Library. One professor I spoke to for this podcast 
told me he'd only recently found something in another library that had also been missing for 20 years. It was simply in the wrong box. The library in question was delighted. Jim told us a similar story. This isn't about the notebooks, but I remember when um, I went to the British Library once and I was looking at some newspaper clippings by a 19th century geologist. Not particularly valuable or anything, but unique, basically. And I turned them in at the British Library and then a week later I wanted to look at them again and I called up for them and I got this note stamped saying, destroyed by enemy action. I think that was a a wartime notice, but obviously something had happened during the... No bombs had fallen in that week. No bombs had fallen, no, not, not then. When we asked the British Library about those newspaper clippings, they didn't comment on Jim's specific experience but emphasised how seriously they take the safety and security of the collections. William Brown is a National Security Advisor for Arts Council England. He helped advise Cambridge when they did their final searches for the Darwin notebooks before the appeal. He explained that owning up to this type of thing comes with a risk. It's not the financial risk. It's a reputational risk that when you get an institution that borrows and is world-class, If the reputation is tarnished in some way, it will stick and people would be reluctant to lend. They would feel threatened for their own collections if they were to lend and they want reassurance that everything is being done to to make sure that the collections and any loans coming in and any loans going out will be safeguarded for the future. It's awkward, especially because when the notebooks went missing the library had just secured one of the most important collections it had ever acquired, the papers of Sir Isaac Newton. It was only able to do that with £6 million from the lottery, charitable foundations and private benefactors, who might have been put off if they thought Cambridge couldn't ensure the collection's safety. And it is especially awkward if the person who had hold of the Darwin notebooks, the person who returned them in that gift bag with that note, still has access to the library's stacks, hallways and reading rooms today. William Brown is clear that security at the university library has improved over the years. Certainly I know they have taken professional advice in the last few years to improve the quality of their security, both of the building and of the readers and of the researchers using the facility. And it's true elsewhere. The British Library, for example, has gathered up its belongings from buildings scattered across Greater London into a fortress on Euston Road, with a complicated system of barcodes and restrictions. Cambridge's University Library looks like a fortress too. The windows at ground level are cross-hatched with metal bars and the entrances are fitted with turnstiles, monitored by staff and the eternal eye of CCTV. But despite all this, precious things are still taken – and not just from smaller libraries with tiny budgets and few staff. William Brown insists it's rare, but it does happen. There are some really enticing examples. In 2009, an Iranian academic was jailed for two years after cutting out and stealing pages from rare books in the British Library and Oxford University's Bodleian Library. An archivist at the Carnegie Library in Pittsburgh in the US was convicted in January 2020 for stealing books worth $8 million over 25 years. Is there there a number? Do you have any idea of kind of how many important items are officially missing? No, I don't. 
and until such time as they are found to be missing and reported, uh, I say reported or, or that information is shared, we have no idea. So it, it could be the, the number is unknown. It could be large. It could be small. Simply put, we have no idea how many national treasures are missing from our shelves. We don't know about the ones libraries or museums keep secret, and we don't know about the ones that they themselves haven't yet noticed. The motivations of book thieves are equally elusive. We can't know for sure why somebody took the Darwin notebooks, or why they returned them with such a flourish. We can't even know that they were taken by a single person, or even if they were taken on purpose. The police are still investigating the case as theft, and they have the CCTV from the library. But William Brown isn't sure that they'll ever prosecute anyone. He questioned whether it was really in the public interest. After all, it is a library. A period of 20 years is perhaps a, a little bit extended, but uh, it would be possibly quite a difficult case to prove within a court to, to say that they had the, the person who took them had got the intent at the time to permanently deprive the library of them. How many of us have a library book at home, on a shelf somewhere, that we've forgotten to take back? But we do know that whoever brought back the notebooks is still at large. We know it's likely that they have access to the library stacks today. And we know that they sign their notes with a kiss. Apart from that, everything is conjecture. Guesswork. But if I were to make a guess, after everyone I've spoken to... I would say this. When Jessica went public, she changed the game. Interpol and the police were on high alert. Suddenly, those two notebooks stashed away on someone's shelf glowed red hot. Bringing them back might be an attempt at self-preservation. But then why not just destroy them? That run into the open, to the corridor outside Jessica's office with a hot pink gift bag... That is risky. A bin fire in your back garden? Less so. So did Jessica's plea elicit a pang of Smeagol-like conscience in whoever had seized the precious things for themselves so long ago? After everything that I've learned, the theory that the books were taken accidentally and then returned by an eccentric but well-meaning professor, it seems nothing more than a stereotype. But I do think whoever returned the books understood their value. They knew the library was the best place for the books to be. Just like Jessica, they wanted the books to be home. I get the feeling that Jessica and Jim, they know there are still questions to answer and gaps to fill. I actually do like myself collecting things. Um, I always have. But the idea of collecting things that effectively are national importance, you know, the, these really unique, important things are the treasures for, for everybody. And so the idea that someone would take them from where they belong and have them themselves, I find that's, to be honest, it's pretty despicable. But I'm glad they returned them. It puts the libraries in a difficult position. Research libraries have two tasks, to be the custodians of the most important books the books which are the foundation of the world as we understand it, and to let people in, to see them. Well, I don't think the solution to cultural theft is to say you never show something. 
I just don't think that's the right thing to do. You know, we, we do our job because, because these are things which are, are here for people to enjoy. So I hope lots of people come and enjoy them and they enjoy them in a way that means that others can. But we cannot simply shut them away in a box as if they don't exist because things that are in a box, actually, they have no meaning and these have profound meaning to people around the world. Knowledge can't be shared if it's locked away. That balance between access and conservation, it's something that librarians like Jessica have to strike. Knowing that the person who took the Darwin notebooks is still out there. That other books risk being spirited away. And that on any other morning, librarians across the country might arrive at work to find a brightly coloured gift bag waiting for them. I mean, let's talk about that packaging because it's so intriguing, isn't it? I think I'm going to get gifts in pink, pink bag, gift bags for an awfully long time to come. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. It was reported by me, Ellen Halliday, and produced by Claudia Williams. Imi Harper was the assistant producer, and Jasper Corbett and Dave Taylor were the editors. The sound design was by Mao Lissetto. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. But before you go, I want to tell you about a new podcast series from Tortoise called Life Changing. It's about the really big changes to early childhood that have happened in the past 20 years in the UK. My colleagues, Claudia Williams and Dave Taylor, who you might know from this podcast, have been working with the Nuffield Foundation, who have brought together eight years of research into the changing face of early childhood, with some really big findings about poverty and inequality and the impact of COVID. It's a fascinating deep dive into what it means to be a young kid, and episode one is out now. Search for Life Changing wherever you listen to your podcasts or you can click the link in the episode notes. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.